Hello, welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian, and joining me is uh, Dr. Nerses Kopalian, the author of EVN Security Report. Welcome to the program, Nerses. Thank you for having me, Maria. We're going to be discussing a December 2023's uh, security briefing called An Institutional Theory of Security for Armenia. And as always, I, I do want to do a brief introduction uh, into the briefing. Um, You know, as Armenia has continued to diversify its security and foreign policy, engaging more deeply with the West, we have seen Baku ramping up its antagonistic posturing against the United States and the EU. And while Baku has been engaging in this uh, behavior, you write that we are witnessing the growing institutionalization of Armenia's security sector. Um, Now, with all of our discussions, it's important to uh, talk about the Russian factor. And with regard to Russia, Yerevan's approach has been one of asymmetrical aggressive bargaining. You've written about this in the past for EVN Report as it continues its uh, security decoupling from Russia, accusing Moscow of abdicating its responsibilities and so forth. Now, Armenia's strategy with regard to Russia has been issue splitting and co-alignment. And I think this is a very important um, uh, aspect of what is taking place place where Armenia will continue to work closely with Russia on things that are important to Armenia's strategy and objectives. And at the same time, Yerevan will deal separately with other partners on issues that don't involve Russia. Now, this, for example, could be security matters um, that can be handled without Russia, while economic trade and energy issues can continue uh, through the Eurasian Economic Union. And this new approach Uh, breaks away from Armenia's old dependence on Russia, creating a shift uh, in the region's geopolitical culture. Now, in the past two years, uh, we have seen Armenia's approach to security changing. But um, what you are proposing is um, an institutional theory of security. This is what Armenia needs. So first of all, let's talk about institutional theory and uh, specifically institutional theory uh, um, of security and what this means. All right. Thank you, Maria. Um, so generally, what we've seen is uh, in the last two years, security thinking in Armenia has evolved. Uh, it has completely changed because the failures of the uh, 2020 war and the collapse of the security architecture and then the continued assumption that this architecture might sustain itself after the war through a, a reliance on Russia further collapsed. And that collapse became solidified after the Jermuk invasion in September of 2022. So these developments, these shocks forced and triggered a change in security thinking in Armenia. And so what we have seen is an evolution of security thought, which no longer revolves around the Russo-Soviet logic of basically militarization, uh, military armament, maintaining sort of an outdated military uh, structure and doctrine as a sufficient modality of security. What we've seen is in the last two years, the conceptualization and understanding of security has exponentially increased, where security is understood within the more uh, contemporary uh, um, nuances that come with it, such as, for example, hybrid warfare, food security, energy security, simply put, the past thinking that security was about hard power and reliance on Russia no longer dictates security thinking in Armenia. So we have seen a a development and change in security thinking. But when security thinking remains just that, a modality of thinking that shapes narrative 
or it's simply an abstract concept, it's important to change minds. But the next step is to, is to basically have an approach where this thinking becomes implemented and operationalized to actually enhance and develop the security environment. And this is where an institutionalist theory of security allows the implementation of this new thinking and makes it into a reality. So without an institutionalist theory of security, what we have is basically something that is on paper or part of discourse and conversation, but it is not something that is going to physically uh, enhance Armenian security architecture or allow uh, the redevelopment of a new one without institutional mechanisms. And so in this context, it's kind of simplified in layman terms, the thinking is there, right? Now, how do we transition this thinking into action. And this is where an institutional theory of security becomes so crucial. Without the institutionalist component, it's not going to lead to action. It's simply going to be part of conversation. Okay, this has to do, in very basic terms, uh, a, a, a chronic problem of weak institutions and institutional underdevelopment, right? I mean, and, and I think it's also important to point out that this is not unique to Armenia. As you, you know, clearly write in the security briefing, it's a persistent phenomenon that we see throughout the post-Soviet space. So where we have politicization, deprofessionalization, and structural co- corruption, which stunts and then erodes the process of institutionalization. This doesn't only have to do with security, obviously. Uh, it, it runs the whole gamut it, it does, of governance. It does run the whole gamut. But if we're talking about uh, this, this more modern and, and sort of contemporary notion of security, uh, security now is a comprehensive phenomenon. So in that context, it does actually uh, become a security issue because security isn't specific to only defense or hard power capacity, right? So in, that, in, in, this, in this situation, for example, let's say there's another pandemic, Okay. Well, you know, uh, pandemics create severe security problems that if you don't have the competent institutions or inter-institutional structure to address these, those could have severe consequences. Um, we have not, for example, done sufficient research to understand what the consequences of COVID-19 were uh, at, uh, for example, logistics and, and military performance during the 2020 war. This is completely outside of the bounds uh, right now what we could consider, right? But we had, if, if uh, uh, we had advanced institutions, we have developed institutions, right? We can understand, for example, that there is a very positive causal relationship between these kinds of issues and uh, security outcomes. This is a very simple example. When we talk about logistical problems, right? Logistical problems are specific, for example, you know, uh, uh, Ministry of Territorial Administration, what used to be Ministry of of Transportation, for example. It's specific to environmental ministry uh, factors. It's it's specific to various other ministry uh, uh, issues. So we see that uh, that these uh, um, components are across the board, and they are multi-tiered and they're nuanced. And so uh, when we understand those things, then we understand we see that security isn't. Simply a discussion about strategy, doctrine, doctrine, uh, war capacity, etc. That's one part of it. But there are all these broad and sort of complex institutional components that are necessary. Everything from the banking sector, for example to uh, basic transportation on the streets, uh, to a capacity to basically uh, secure uh, uh, food security, 
right? So when we when we talk about these things, we realize that who implements these, who develops these policies in times of crisis, how are these basically operationalized? Well, institutions are supposed to do that. So if you have underdeveloped institutions, right, your security architecture becomes inherently weak. And during times of shock or crisis, you see collapse or severe inability to address the dire needs. I, yeah, it's fascinating. I do hope somebody at one point, uh, and we don't do this, unfortunately, uh, does do a, a study on Armenia's response to COVID-19 and understand how that impacted um, not only how we lived, but definitely the outcome of the war as well. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, and you write about it again, that, you know, security institutions, institutions in general, but specifically security institutions were never designed to protect the people, the state, uh, or the institutions of the state, but rather to protect and preserve the illiberal regime in power. And I don't mean to beat a dead horse about this, because we've been doing the security briefing now for, you know, <laughs> well over a year and several months. Uh, but I think it's important to also um you know, talk very briefly about that component as well. Definitely. This is not simply an Armenia problem. This is a post-Soviet problem where uh, we've seen uh, security become an extension of the regime in power as opposed to advancing uh, the security interests of society. So conceptually, right, uh, when you have a security apparatus in non-democratic or illiberal regimes that are designed to protect the interests of those in power or protect the interests of the political elite, those institutions cannot serve the interests of the people. So during times of crises, they are not equipped, trained, or developed to address uh, the securities that a society would have. So they might be equipped and trained, for example, to clamp down on protests or to uh, suppress dissent or things like that. But the important components that define security for a society, these types of institutions are not designed and already able to do that because they have been personalized within the the, the, uh, interest of a given president that we had in the past or their oligarchic circles. And so this is very common we see both in Central Asia, Russia appears to be having this problem. And of course, Armenia had this problem. And so in the past, when we would talk about security components, the conversation wasn't ever about the institution that has X, Y, and Z responsibilities. The conversation was always about the given individual that leads that institution and the extent to which that institution has become the personal fiefdom of that given uh, political elite. So when you have structures like that, those structures inherently are not equipped or sufficiently developed. Further, they're deprofessionalized, right? People who are accepted into those uh, structures are not the professional, competent, sophisticated security experts that you have. People who are recruited and incorporated into systems are those that are basically byproducts of nepotism, of favoritism that are going to serve the interests of the given elite. So what that does, it creates a systemic dysfunction, a systemic problem. Now, you've had that systemic problem for nearly 26, 27 years years. Uprooting and immediately changing that is going to become extremely difficult, near impossible in a matter of years. We saw these same situations, for example, uh, just coming from an academic background in Latin America, right? Latin America had similar security institutions in the 70s and early 80s that were designed to preserve the non-democratic, the illiberal governments in power. It took over 10, 15 years to reform these systems and professionalize them. It is still a work in progress. So these are a very, very complex phenomena. 
but the side effect of these uh, of these institutional development is that in times of crises, society becomes uh, not only unable to address its issues, but the government becomes incapable of addressing the problems of, of the, their given society. Uh, we talk, for example, a lot about the Ukraine-Russia-Ukraine war, right? A lot of the conversation is why is Russia underperforming on the battlefield? Why are they having problems with weaponry or this or that? Well, because they have, relatively speaking, uh, under the Developed institutions because corruption is prevalent. Where you have corruption in the security architecture, if you have corruption in the military industrial complex, you're not going to get the quality of products, the quality of leadership, the quality of training that could allow professionalized performance. That's a very simple example. Armenia is no different, right? Uh, because of the underlying institutional underdevelopment. So between deprofessionalization, between uh, uh, deep, uh, deinstitutionalization, and the personalization of the security architecture, the uh, uh, side effects were exponential. Another thing to consider is in the scholarship, we use a term uh, known as Praetorian Guard. And the Praetorian system is basically where you have the political elite develop a security architecture that insulates them from the rest of society. So you have parallel security uh, systems. And for the longest time, for example, right, and we have to be honest about this, I'm going to give a very direct example. You have the National Security Service in Armenia. Within the National Security Service, there was the 6th Division, okay, whose responsibility specifically was to serve the previous uh, political elite, which whether it was this oligarch or that president or that president's brother, so on and so forth. So you had a state institution that would deal with the personal interests of the political elite. This is inherently dysfunctional, but that was the structure, right? So you had basically uh, security officers who were trained for 10, 15 years not to serve the people, but to serve parochial corrupt interests. Now, you take that systemic development and you apply it to a new security architecture, it's pretty clear where this function comes from. And so an institutional theory of security not only is cognizant of these systemic defects and shortcomings, but also develops mechanisms to address them so that when you bring new security thinking, the institutions will be ready to address these new policies and strategies. Uh Fascinating. Thanks, uh, Nurses. Now, you also say that in this institutional theory of security, there are three elements that are crucial to the process of institutionalization. Expertise, trust, symbolic power. Expertise and trust, okay, what do you mean by symbolic power? Well, they're interconnected, right? So when we talk about expertise, Armenia does not really have security expertise because we don't have a school that produces security studies. So what you had for a long time is officers in the security apparatus that were trained in Moscow, right? And then replanted back in Armenia. That in, that in of itself creates all kinds of problems, right? So you have a de-expertization of potential expertise. Uh, and that creates all the problems that we talk about. Trust isn't simply about individual or interpersonal trust. It's a question of institutional trust. Okay, and for the longest time, right, Armenian society had a complete distrust of anything that was specific to the security apparatus, whether it was the National Security Service, whether it was the police, this, that, so on and so forth. So you had the problem of institutional distrust. Uh, now, have those been resolved? To some extent, yes, but not sufficiently. Okay, and these are issues that need to be addressed. Symbolic power is very interesting. In Armenia, the only institution that has enjoyed some level of institutional trust and symbolic power has been the military. 
Okay, but that to an extent was punctured after the 2020 war. But symbolic power entails the logic that a given institution, by virtue of its existence, has an intrinsic resonance within society. Thus, when society uh, is, is uh, basically uh, exposed or, or has access to a given institution, they show a certain indifference to it because this institution represents symbolic power. For the longest time in the Soviet system, the KGB was a representative of this. Post-Soviet society, you've had a dysfunction, right? With the exception of the military that I brought out as an example, in Armenia, there is no institution that basically projects symbolic power because there is so much distrust towards those institutions because they were never viewed as institutions. They were viewed as the personal fiefdoms of given individuals. So this interconnection uh, remains an important component. Now, societies that do develop and have a healthy institutionalized theory of, of uh, security uh, to a large extent have these issues uh, uh, resolved. So you may have, for example, policy disagreements. You may have budgetary disagreements. You may have strategic disagreements, right? But you don't question the expertise of the CIA, for example, right? You don't question the institutional trust that uh, the British may have in Scotland Yards, okay? And the symbolic power of, you know, uh, a given institution, whether it's in Canada or whether it's in France or Spain or whatever the case might be, right? Those are not uh, brought under question simply because there might be policy disagreements. So uh, what I want to address in this context is that Public discourse, disagreements, and debate isn't the same as institutions lacking credibility or legitimacy or trust, right? So those are different things. In our society, all of this is basically intertwined. We uh, tend to, uh, uh, so a lot of times, incorrectly fuse disagreements, policy, distrust, and basically dislike into sort of this cocktail of dysfunction. And this is, again, a byproduct of what we've seen in the last 25, 30 years. So what an institutional theory of security does is that it basically nurtures expertise. It nurtures institutional trust. And it brings about a sense of symbolic power that resonates with, with Armenian society. And so these components are fundamental if Armenia is going to develop a new and a robust security architecture. Okay, I want to get into the nuts and bolts now of what you were recommending. And we had a back and forth on this, Nurses, when I received the security briefing and I was uh, complaining rather robustly to you that it, it was a little too academic and too complex. Um, and I want now for us to be able to explain it in a way that all of us can understand. Um, so just to, to set the groundwork, uh, so security thinking is led uh, by the National Security Council, this is in Armenia, and it, with oversight uh, and policymaking guidance from you know the prime minister's office and implementation uh, there are several bodies, uh, the, so there's a division of labor within uh, various security institutions. This includes obviously the Ministry of Defense, the National Security Services, and the Ministry now that we have of Internal Affairs. Now, this interrelational structure, the collection of expertise, trust, and symbolic power that each and collectively all possess, are, are you right, foundational to an institutional theory of power. Now, within this context, you are saying that the process of institutionalization and operationalization must be guided by 
a number of precepts. Correct. Yes. And I do apologize if the language was a little technical. Um, It was a little dense. The literature literature is from the institutional scholarship. And a lot of times when we are talking about technical things, they cannot be simplified to an extent where they diverge from uh, from the substantive material. So uh, indeed, the material this time was a little complex, but um, there's a reason for that is because uh, this modality of thinking, this scholarship has worked exceptionally well in a, a lot of countries that have undergone this process. And so from a scholarly perspective, uh, I agree um, the material can be a little difficult to absorb, but a lot of it is quite intuitive. We just need to kind of you know provide more thorough explanations. Right. Well, because when I was asking, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you, because when I was asking you, okay, what does this mean and what do you mean by this? And you, when you were explaining it, it's, it was un- comprehensible but then in the text my concern is always that it it isn't so right. i i do want to go of course let's now. let's kind of go over the the precepts uh, uh that need to be uh, uh sort of you know the, the underlying pillars that define uh, Armenia's mm-hmm. new institutional theory of security so one of the first ones that i talk about is the necessities to, to be able to conceptualize the interaction the relationship between institutions individual behavior and this and how this affects society what we need to understand is that institutions shape behavior this is not something that's thoroughly sufficiently studied in armenia but for example you have parents that are thinking about what they're going to do with their 17 year old son because they don't want them to go into the army we don't think about this as an institutional phenomenon but that it, that, that is an important case right so if institutions for example shaping out migration Okay, or for example, you have a lot of citizens, uh, especially in the past, that were terrified of uh, filing a police report or addressing their grievances because they felt that they might be entrapped into some kind of a corrupt police uh, uh, scheme. That shaped collective social behavior, right? So institutions, more than we think about, have a very acute effect on citizen thinking and citizen behavior. So any institutional theory of security needs to be cognizant of this. They need to understand not only are we in the abstract doctrinal uh, uh, components of it or the strategy implementation of it, but rather the relationship, right? The interaction between institutions and its effect on the collective public and on on citizens. So this interrelationship is very important. So when we do talk about a comprehensive security doctrine that is being developed right now, right, uh, and we've talked about this in our previous security briefings, in times of crisis, for example, institutions might request, for example, taxi drivers to have a certain responsibility during war. Right, or they might request uh, certain individuals that work in certain sectors uh, of a given industry to have a certain responsibility during war. Now, these aren't just abstract concepts or strategies, right, or policies. These are going to have concrete effect on citizen behavior, and so this conceptualizing this relationship is very, very important, and that this comes from the institutionalist school of thought. So this is one important precept that needs to be part of uh, implementation. Right, but this can't, as you said, just be an abstract or something, uh, no um, concept or something uh, designed. If the behavior of the institution isn't changed, isn't improved, 
then we're not precisely, going to have any kind precisely. of... If the behavior isn't changed, then that means you have under-institutionalization. And so we go back to the same trap that we talked about, yeah. right? And this is the issue. Uh, another very important precept, right, is we need to be uh, aware of the asymmetries and the distribution of power that are kind of part of the process where, we, where which uh, security institutions operationalize and implement policies. In Armenia, for example, we've had asymmetries and distribution power problems within our institutions uh, since independence, even during the Soviet period, right? Few institutions had way more power than other institutions, and this created a lot of dysfunction. Okay, in the previous regimes, you, we had quote unquote super ministries, where from the lens of institutional studies is fundamentally ignorant. But what happens is that these institutional legacies sustain themselves, and then now when you try to reform these, you have all kinds of complexities. Take for example the national security services that we have in Armenia. This was supposed to be the all encompassing the institution that deals with all kinds of security when it comes to both domestic and foreign issues, right? So an NSS officer is not only, for example, supposed to investigate a murder, but they're also engaged, supposed to engage in espionage. Well, this is incoherent, right? But this is the problem when you have a symmetry and an unhealthy distribution of power. How do you address that? Well, Armenia has taken initial steps towards addressing this, right? The NSS will deal with domestic issues, and now we recently created the Foreign Intelligence Service that will deal with foreign issues. It's how you have a distribution of power within the institutional structure. This is a very, very simple example. In the past, right, the prosecutor's office had so much power and authority that they would both lead investigations and they would be a lot more powerful than the given judges. This is asymmetry in the institutional distribution of power. Right. So whenever you develop an institutional theory of security, you have to be cognizant of these distributional and asymmetrical issues. And this is why it's an important part of our conversation. And not all of these should lead to the office of the prime minister, yes? No, definitely not. I mean... Generally speaking, because security falls within the executive uh, 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 branch, so to speak, it does fall to some extent under the purview of uh, the office of the prime minister. But, uh, you know, extending the institutionalist discourse, you need robust oversight from the legislative branch, which also has institutional responsibilities. So, so in that context, right, all these components need to have an inter institutional relationship as far as the uh, uh, branches of government and the distribution of, of power is concerned at the, at the macro-structural level. So you have sort of the broad structural level of the institutions of state, and then you have these given security institutions uh, as well. But most definitely, um, while the they fall within the executive branch and under the purview of the prime minister, these need to be mitigated through a robust and aggressive uh, oversight by both uh, the legislature, parliament, civic society, and watchdog structures, which are basically intergovernmental organizations. So there are mechanisms, obviously, to address this because not everything can fall within a singular executive uh, realm of responsibility. Another important precept is to uh, be cognizant of the fact that institutions are part of a causal chain, that the behavior of one security apparatus can have socioeconomic, 
uh, uh, social, foreign policy, and collective security issues, uh, 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 consequences. So in that context, the interconnectedness, the systemic approach to inter-institutional security development is very, very important. And we've given a lot of examples about this, right? But for example, assume uh, that the procurement process that begins within the Ministry of Defense is fundamentally flawed. That one flaw in the causal chain in the security architecture can produce detrimental outcomes both on the battlefield and within the domestic front. So this interconnectedness and the causal chain is a fundamental thing that needs to be part of uh, our security thinking and institutional buildup. And to sort of uh, kind of wrap it up, uh, one of the more important components here, of course, is institutional arrangements. In in, in developed societies, uh, there's a great deal of emphasis on institutional arrangements because functionality is the heart and soul of institutional uh, self-reproduction and institutional uh, uh, growth. If you don't have functional institutions, they obviously uh, either remain stagnant or they don't serve the interests of society. How do you make institutions functional? You must, you must have institutional arrangements that are conducive to functionality. And I know this is a technical conversation, but mm-hmm. generally, when you observe developed democracies, right, you see so much what they call rule by desk, quote unquote, where you have a lot of policies, rules, structures, bureaucracy. Those are not accidental. Those are the institutional arrangements that allow these institutions to be functional. In Armenia, not is it only wholly underdeveloped, but a lot of times the arrangements don't make sense. And so one of the important elements of, of developing institutional secu- uh, uh, structure of uh, theory of security is to be very, very cognizant of the fact that we need to have healthy institutional arrangements. And you also talk about distributional coherence uh, as uh, you know, one of the two important developments of implementing institutional theory of security. Definitely, yes? definitely. So, you know, uh, the, these components, again, well, we, I don't want to sort of now beat the same water and go go, go, in, go in circles, but I think we're, we're, okay. we're seeing uh-huh. a, a consistent pattern here that comes from the institutionalist scholarship that basically suggests, you know, there are about five, six precepts that need to be correctly implemented in order for uh, the security uh, institutions and structures to uh, serve the, the, the objectives and the goals that they have or that are set for them. Yeah, this has been a you know um, simple at times complex conversation that we've had, and you know we've we've spoken about and we've written about the future trajectory of Armenia in terms of its security and development. Uh, You know, you've written uh, extensively about, uh, you know, porcupine theory. We've had articles about this concept of fortress Armenia. And the only way to achieve uh, independent security, independent foreign policy is for Armenia to have this institutional theory of security uh, as part of its um, um, it's part of its vision of what it wants to be uh, as a country when it grows up. Uh, um, 
any final thoughts on this, Nurses? Um, I think it's, this has been a, an important uh, conversation that we had this time around. Yes, Maria. I think um, as uh, security thinking in Armenia is evolving, as we're bringing more cutting-edge research and, and, and policy thinking and strategic thinking, institutional thinking is going to be very, very important. Uh, we've spoken, for example, about uh, issue splitting, co-alignment, diversification. A very simple example. Let's say that we are on track and we will be able to procure a lot more arms than we've had in the past. If we don't have an institutional theory of security, if we don't have the healthy bureaucracies and sort of the institutional arrangements and the expertise and the institutional trust that we talk about, you may have a lot of arms that you don't use effectively or correctly. That you might have dysfunction where those a lot of those weaponry or arms or systems that you procure are not used correctly to address the security interests of the country. So in that context, right, we cannot fall into the trap of politicizing security. And what institutionalization does is it basically creates guardrails against the politicization of security. And, and politicizing security is very dangerous. We did that for 25 years, right? Remember, for example, when we got the Iskander missiles and we said, oh, all of our problems are solved because we have these missiles. Now imagine hypothetically, and it's a good thing this government has not done it, but imagine if this government came up and said, we got billion dollars of procurements from India, all of our security issues are resolved. That would be a dishonest act. And they haven't done that. But that is an example of using security for political dividends. That happens in personalized leaderships. But when you have institutionalist theories of security, these things don't happen. And so uh, in that context, if we want the things that you discussed, porcupine Armenia, fortress Armenia, whatever the case might be, none of that could be achieved if you don't have an institutionalist Armenia. And this is why it is a big part of our growing future of security architecture. Well, I certainly hope that the powers that be uh, listen and read uh, and understand. And there are many things that are happening. A lot of things are not publicized. Uh, a lot of things are expectations, uh, of course, as well. Um, and we continue to find ourselves in a very difficult and complex uh, situation. And uh, these security briefings are certainly uh, helping us to understand uh, the path forward. So thank you, Narcissus, for, uh, for this conversation. Always my pleasure.